Let's get Bibles open and ready. Uh, John chapter 13 is where we are. If you need a Bible, put your hand up and the guys in the back will bring one to you. If not, if you have your Bible with you, John chapter 13 is where we are this morning. This is it. Wow. Let's pray. Lord, you have been so faithful over the years, Lord. Just like Abraham, how you called him to go to a place that he did not know. That he would be called to trust you one step at a time. Lord, that's so hard for us. We always want to know the end from the beginning, just like you. But you don't tell us, Lord, because we mess it up. So you, you ask us to trust you one step at a time. And each step, Prove yourself faithful. And Lord, for the last number of years, all the questions, all the challenges that we faced, you've proven faithful. You've provided a place for us all the time. And we trust, Lord, that you've been faithful in the past and that you will be faithful in the future. We know that you don't ever change, that you don't lie, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we expect it not just in our lives corporately, but in our lives personally. Lord, help us to trust you step by step, not to try to outthink you or outrun you or any of those things. Help us not to lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge you, knowing that you'll direct our path. Let we lay our lives at your feet. We've tried and we've made a mess of it. We've bungled things up and botched things up. Every time we try to run ahead, every, try, every time we think we're smarter, so, Lord, here we are, acknowledging our need, acknowledging our short-sightedness, acknowledging our, our temptations to be fleshy and carnal, acknowledging our tendency toward passion for the things of this world, and knowing, Lord, even as we, we engage in those things, that they leave us empty every time. Lord, what, we, what we've always wanted is just the closeness of you. So, Lord, draw close to us this morning as we draw close to you. Through your word. It's in Jesus' name, all God's people say, Amen. Thirteenth chapter of John. From now, for the next number of chapters uh, leading up to the crucifixion, takes place in a very, very short period of time from the time we that we're reading about here in chapter 13. Uh, it will be less than 24 hours until uh, Jesus is, uh, has actually been crucified, and uh, probably around more like 12 hours. So the next number of chapters represent a very short, condensed period of time. Jesus has withdrawn from the, the crowds at large into the upper room for the Last Supper with his disciples. He's going to teach them there his last words, uh, the last things he'll pass on to them before he's crucified. He knows what's coming. It's not a surprise to him. And so very, very important for us to pay attention to what he's going to tell them because it means something to us as well. 
So chapter 13 begins with, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, uh, he loved them to the end. So again, the timing is set for us. John is going to give us this fast-paced series of things that all crescendo in Jesus washing the disciples' feet. It's like John just listing one thing, this was happening, and this was happening, and this was happening, and then, and all of this being said, Jesus did this. And you'll see them just knock these things off one at a time. Now this is, by the calendar, this would be, we celebrate this as Maundy Thursday or Thursday evening, uh, and, and the crucifixion being Friday morning, and the resurrection being Sunday morning. So that's just to give you a little time frame. Um, the Feast of the Passover is what's going on. They would celebrate by killing the lamb. That would recall and recount their being delivered out of Egypt from slavery. Jesus then, uh, Paul ascribing uh, to Jesus the, the identity of the lamb. He is, he is our Passover lamb that rescues us from, from death. And his, look what he knew. So number one, Jesus knew that his hour had come. We, we knew his hour of glory had come. We, you know, the crucifixion and the resurrection, God being glorified in his suffering and in his, his sacrifice. But was, what, what caught my attention is that the hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. That's Jesus' view on death. He's going to depart this world, but not to some emptiness, not to some you know, uh, spiritual, you know, kind of out-of-body experience, he is definitely going to somewhere. I think that's important to remember uh, when we think about our own death, our own departure from this world. All, you know, a lot of times you see the Apostle Paul even talking about when he knew his time was drawing near to depart. It speaks of a ship that's pulling up anchor and setting sail, going to another destination. It speaks of a tent that's uh, where you... you, you you break camp, so to speak, or you pull up the tent, the tent pegs and you, you pack up that old tent with all the holes in it and all the, the tears in it. You pack it up. Why? Because you're moving into a permanent location. Hey, that sounds good to me, doesn't it? And, and so Jesus says, I'm departing from this world, but I'm going to the Father. And this is what we've all, I mean, for those of us that know the Lord, that, that this is, the world gets in our way sometimes of really drawing close to God. There's so many distractions. So this is what we've always wanted. You know, I don't know what you think and what you perceive heaven to be like. You know, well, there's going to be flowers. There's going to be this. And my heaven's going to be like this. Is my dog going to be there? I, I don't know about all that stuff. What I know is it's going to be the, very, the, the most important thing to you there is the thing you've always wanted on earth but struggled to have in a complete way, and that's in the, to be in the presence of God going to be with the Father. That's going to be, the, in my opinion, that's going to be the most overwhelming and astonishing part of heaven. So that's what Jesus says. It's my time to depart from this world to the Father and the description of having loved his own. And when we know those guys, they're not all that lovable. Now remember, coming up to this, they've been arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And they, they you know, Jesus would teach them. They don't get it. They bungle things up. They try to go heal. They can't do it. Yeah, these guys are a mess. Peter always sticking his foot in his mouth. Thomas always having doubts. And yet Jesus looks at this ragtag bunch of guys and says, I love them. I love my own. 
he, and he could look at the end of his life and say, having loved his own who were in the world. And that's what we're in the world. And Jesus knows that. And he knows the world challenges us. He doesn't stop loving us. Matter of fact, it says he loved them to the end, to the fullest, to the uttermost. We always feel like our salvation hangs, that God's love is that somehow our, our sin affects that. That if I sin, that God's going to stop loving me. God is love. There's nothing you can do to get him to stop loving you. Listen clearly. You, if you don't know that, you don't know the grace of God. He doesn't love you because you're lovable. Look in the mirror. Ask your wife. Ask your husband. Ask your kids. We're not all that love. We can pull some lovable moments together occasionally. But we have some times when we're really not that lovable. And so God loves us not because we're lovable, but because he is love. That's what he does. That's who he is. The Bible says, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if he died for you, if he loved you enough to die for you while you were still in your pride and in your religiosity and in your sinfulness and in your addiction and all of that, if he loved you enough to die for you then, now that you become his child, you think now he's going to stop loving you? Right. He loved them to the end. Now, verse 2 says, and supper being ended. And, and that's uh, the translators that, that, that analyze this Greek stuff and parts of speech and whatnot. See, that probably should be translated during supper, and, and rather than supper being ended. This is during the course of the meal, the Last Supper. The devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and they would come from God and was going to God. See, all these things lining up. So first, he knew it was his hour to depart from the world. And as supper was going on, the devil had already put it into the heart of Jesus. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. He knew where he, he had come from, and he knew where he was going. And we'll talk about each of those things in turn. But this is all the buildup. Now remember, during supper, it's quite likely, we don't have it here, but it's quite likely that they're still arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Now remember, they're expecting Jesus is going to be sort of this the, the Savior of Israel. He's going to set them free. He's going to restore their, their, their power to their nation, and they want to be part of that stuff. I mean, they want to be, I want to be the, the, the prime minister, you know, John and James fighting over, you know, being, being in his right and his left hand, and that's what they're thinking. And Jesus is just listening to this. He knows, you know, with, within 12 hours, he's going to be crucified. And he's listening. Can you imagine, like, Jesus listening to them banter back and forth about who can be the greatest, whose idea is the best? who's got the most uh, qualifications for leadership with Jesus, and just shaking his head. Now, we, we get a mention of Judas here. Look what it says about Judas. This fascinates me, and I don't fully understand it. The devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So it's almost as if Judas is a host. The Judas thinks he's thinking his own thoughts. Just like you think you're thinking your own thoughts. But our minds are sort of a battlefield, are they not? Now, I, I learned a couple of things. I like to present interesting information to you guys. I think it's interesting. Maybe you won't. If you, like, if you don't like insects and parasites, this may gross you out. But I find some very interesting comparisons in nature 
to the things that we learn about in the Word of God. So there is a parasitic hairworm. It's called a hairworm, and it inhabits crickets. And it, it, it grows inside of the cricket until it gets too big to be able to fit in there anymore. But now here's the problem. Crickets are land insects, right? But this hairworm is an aquatic parasite, aquatic bug, aquatic thingamabob. So it has to get the cricket to commit suicide by jumping in the water so that it can then swim out and, and go and finish its mating cycle and all that stuff. So what they found out, and they don't understand how it works, but the, the, hair, the parasite is able to change the proteins in the cricket's mind and control its mind and make it commit suicide. Causes it to, to jump into the water so that it can finish its life cycle. You think that's fascinating? How about the, um, the cockroach wasp? It's called the emerald cockroach wasp. Now this is absolutely fascinating. It has to find just the right cockroach. First, it finds a hole in the ground, a suitable hole, and it digs it out, cleans it out. That's where its eggs are going to be developed and the larvae are going to develop and all that. So then it has to find a cockroach. It has to be a cockroach with a neck. There are certain kind of cockroaches. This is what you came to church for, right? Cockroach anatomy. Got to be a cockroach that has a neck. Not all of them do. I know you needed to know that. But uh, it has to be a cockroach with a, a neck and a flexible head. Listen, it has to be able to be directed. And so then it's got, so the emerald wasp finds this cockroach, and then it injects it. It's got a stinger, and it stings it in two places. It stings right into the back of its neck, and it, the stinger also is a sense organ, and it searches around to find the cockroach's brain. And then it stings it in two places, specifically. Now, this, co this is a wasp. It's not a neurosurgeon. Now, it's a, it's a miracle that this wasp is born with the ability to know where to sting this cockroach in the brain. The first sting disables its escape reflex. It, it may, basically makes it, loses motivation to walk. That's sting number one. The second sting turns on its grooming reflex. So it becomes very docile. It just starts kind of looking in the mirror, checking it out, grooming. It's very easy to be manipulated. So once it disables those two spots, and you can watch this on video, it's very interesting. The wasp becomes its master. The wasp is now in control of the cockroach. The cockroach is just a brainless zombie doing whatever the wasp tells it to do. And it grabs it. The wasp grabs the cockroach by its antenna and leads it like a dog on a leash back to its hole where it will then uh, become the host for the young of this wasp. Now, I read that, I saw that, and then I read this. This is from 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, speaking of the opponents, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You see, you think you're thinking your thoughts. Your, your mind is sort of a neutral place. There's a whole movement of free thinking. I, I don't believe that there's very much free thinking that goes on. All of our thinking is influenced. Ask advertising agents. That's why companies spend thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars on advertising. And they're going to use your fear to do it. You know how they're going to sell you something now? 
They're going to tell you it, it fixes prostate cancer. They're going to tell you it, it, it changes heart disease because they're going to play on our fears. How many of you think Volvo is a safe car? Yeah, we, we've been in You know, I'm not saying it's not, but they spent thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars on their advertising campaign to make you and I think that they're that that's a safe car. That's their purpose. They want us to. They want to control our thinking. Satan, the Bible says, entered into the heart of Judas. Excuse me. He put it. He put it like that emerald wasp. He put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Now, I believe that these cockroaches are unwilling hosts. I believe Judas was a willing host. And I believe what keeps me safe is God's word. I believe I have to always be, I'm safe from those attacks because I know God's word. But I, I don't, how does this all work? I don't understand. All I know is that Judas was, thought he was thinking his own thoughts. But he was just playing right into the hands of what the devil was telling him to do. And I ask that about your life. What are you doing right now? That the devil, you're just playing right into his hands. That he put it in your heart to do that thing. You ever think a thought and you go, where in the world did that come from? Like, I don't even want that thought. It just came and I don't It's just not a thought I would want to think. And then, if you don't have any way to combat that thought, it comes back and it comes back. And pretty soon you're acting on that thought. Unless you take it captive. And bring it into obedience to Christ. See, that's the battle that's going on. So that's what. So Judas is already planning this betrayal. He's going to betray him with a kiss in the garden. Jesus, verse three, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, so He knows. Jesus has. Jesus knows He is all authority on heaven and earth given to Him. Anything. You know, what would you do if all authority was given to you? Begin changing some things around this place, wouldn't you? All authority. Keep that in mind. And, and this is very important, and he knew that he had come from God and that he was going to God. He knew where he was from and he knew where he was going. You want to develop a secure identity? You want to develop a confident identity for yourself? Don't do it by... by trying to please the world. You'll never please the world. The minute you please this person, that person's upset. You'll never do it like that. You won't do it by thinking you came from, from scum of the upon scum and that lightning struck and that somehow you're you're here by chance. That won't help you develop a secure identity because if that's true, then nothing is meaningful. Nothing. If we are just chance beings, then nothing has meaning. or It only has the meaning that we give it. We decide what's right and wrong. We decide what's good or bad. Meaningless. If you want a secure identity, there's two important things you have to know. You have to know where you came from. That you were created in the image of God. And they have to know where you're going. When you know where you're from and where you're going, all the rest of the stuff, it's like a piece of cake. You know, if I'm not trying to prove to somebody that I'm something, look, I'm going to heaven, whether you love me or not, you know, whether you like me, whether you think I did a good job, or whether you like my haircut, or, you know, I cut it myself, if you didn't notice. Doesn't take much. What's it matter? I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be with the Lord. That's what matters. So I don't have to impress you. I don't have to prove myself to you. And it's all of these things, because my identity is secure, because your identity is secure, where I know where I'm from, 
I was created by God. He's given me things to do before the foundation of the world that I would walk in them. And, and, and I want that. Before I made you, I knew you, he tells Jeremiah. Before I made you, I, and I had a plan for you. And I believe that in my life. I believe that's true. And I know where I'm going. And so to all those things being true and importantly true, Jesus was able to, verse 4, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments. He took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And that doesn't nearly seem as astounding to us as it would have to them. Because the job of one, now, in those days, you know, the shoes were just basically a piece of leather of some sort on your foot with a, held on by straps. And they didn't have paved roads, they didn't have all that stuff, so feet got dirty and muddy. So if you were going to a guest house, <clears throat> excuse me, you would shower up, wash up, you'd get in your, your bathtub, you'd wash, and then you'd walk to your, your friend's house for dinner. But by the time you got there, you know, there's animals in the street, and they, you know, they do their thing in the street there, and so you're walking, and it's muddy, it's dirty, if it's rained, it can be really deep mud. So by the time you get to your neighbor's house, your feet are dirty. And so the job of the lowest slave was to be there at the door to greet you when you came in and wash your feet. That was the lowest slave's job. Now, I'm not a foot person. I don't know if you guys, I don't like feet. Feet have 250,000 sweat glands. Did you know that? Now you do. You learned a lot this morning at church. There is a woman, I found this out too. This is what I do all week. I found this out. There's a woman named Madeline Albrecht. She worked in Cincinnati, Ohio for, guess who? The research lab for Dr. Scholes. Guess what her job was? Her job was to smell feet and armpits. I hear there's an opening if anybody's looking for her work. She has the world record for the most feet and armpits smelled, uh, 5,600 feet in her 15-year career. See, you go, ooh, because we know, you know, and it, maybe you're ashamed of your feet. If you like, you know, some people are very con self-conscious about their feet. They're very ashamed of their feet. Our feet smell and, and those kind of things. And so here's Jesus. He, he bends down and to wash. He's all authority is given into his hands. He can do, I mean, he can order them around. He can make them serve him. This is God in the flesh. We, we have to remember that. We wonder what's God like? God bends down to serve his creation. Now I don't know any other God like that. It's mostly when you go in other parts of the world, you see gods and people are so busy serving them, trying to please them, and then they don't know what they have. They're putting food out for them and anything. That's, it's all this huge pressure of serving that God, trying to make him happy. We have a God who bent down to serve, to wash his disciples. Not just to wash them, to wash the dirtiest parts. Now look what Peter says. He comes to Peter, and this is well, we're going to let this play out a little bit more. He girds himself with the towel. He bends down, gets the basin, washes the junk and the crud and the mud and the animal manure off their feet. And then he comes around to Peter. So he starts one at a time. Judas is there. He starts, and, and he comes to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? I mean, this is emphatic. 
and the word you and my are, are definitely emphasized. Are you washing my feet? I mean, this is the job of the lowest slave. Lord, I'm, you're not going to wash my feet. And, and you got to be, well, you got to be willing to let the Lord do a washing in your life. But let's read a little farther. We'll talk about that some more. Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And that's the, in the Greek double negative, which is actually a stronger negative. You shall by no way, no means, ever, never, ever, ever wash my feet. And you can imagine Peter going, oh, you know, give me that back. You know, he's, he's washed all the disciples' feet. Now he's come around to Peter, and Peter withdraws from him. You're not, don't touch my feet, Lord. You know, this is above you. This is, this is below you. You're, you're above this. So Peter thinks he's saying, you know, Peter's the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, you know. Always thinks he's saying just the right thing. Uh, and going to be impressed, Jesus. You shall never wash. And look what Jesus says to him. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. This is not about being saved. This is not about, uh, you know, salvation experience. This is about fellowship with Christ. Paul talks about washing, you know, because there's something deeper going on here. This is not just about having your feet washed, and we'll talk more about that, because we don't do foot washing in church. Maybe some of you have been part of a foot washing ceremony, but we don't see this laid down as a, a sacrament of the church. In other words, we've got baptism, uh, you know, and, and we've got foot washing, and we've got the Lord's Supper. That We don't do foot washing, because we don't read about it being practiced in the book of Acts. There's no explanation of how to do it in the book of Acts. We don't see it practiced regularly as part of the ordinance of the church uh, in, in the early church. People do foot washing services. They do that. Uh, and and it's, it's kind of, you ever been to one? It's kind of like, ooh, you know. You hope you know about it ahead of time so you can wash up a little bit, right? That's how we think about these things. Cut your toenails, you know, that kind of thing. I'm not a foot guy. Did I mention that? I don't like horse feet. I can do horse feet, which is crazy. You would think of, anyway. Jesus said, said to Peter, what I'm doing now, you do not understand, but you're going to know, you're going to understand this later. And Peter will understand this later, because he'll write in his epistle, he says, you, you, you younger people, be submissive to the older folks. And the, and the older folks, be submissive. He says, forget it. Everybody be submissive to one another. Everybody be humble. That's what Peter says. He learned that here. He learned that allowing yourself to be washed. He learned that taking the lower spot, you know, everybody wants to be in charge. I don't know, being in charge is not all it's cracked up to be. There's some days where I go, man, sometimes I just love to show up and, and, and do something this or something. I don't want to be in charge. And I find that in the body of Christ, in the, in, in the kingdom, that oftentimes the, the places of leadership go to the people that never wanted them in the first place. And the people that strive for them and want them are the people that probably shouldn't have them. See, Jesus had all authority, but he's willing to, to get down and to take the lowest job. And, and, and I wonder how that goes around, around this. And I've seen you guys in action. You guys do this stuff. You're taking care of each other. You're putting yourself. And, and trouble always comes when people think they deserve something better than to do this menial job. Well, that job is beneath me. I shouldn't have to do that. Well, then maybe you'll have no fellowship with Christ unless you do. Because that's where he is. I want to be where Christ is. 
And Christ is willing to take the dirtiest jobs. He's willing to take out the trash. He's willing to clean the toilets in the new church building. Just saying. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, I do, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Uh, Paul takes this about washing. And so the washing that's being spoken of is not just the superficial level of it. That, that has some application. But the deeper thing is Paul would say, just like Christ and the church, husbands should be washing their wives with the water of the word. The word is like the water. Not scrubbing husbands. Don't scrub your wives. Don't scrub your husbands with the word. You know, get out the Brillo pad of the word. No, it's a gentle thing. It's a washing with the water of the word. Now, John himself picks up, I think, this idea in 1 John. And he says about walking in light, walking in darkness, he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What is the dirty feet, it's not about being saved. It's about the nastiness in our lives. It's about dealing with things in the world. It's about making stupid choices. It's about it, gravitating towards sin. It's about being human. And what, what Peter wants to do is hide that. No, you'll never wash my feet. My feet are ugly. I've never liked them anyway. No, they're dirty. And there's parts of our lives, you know it. You know for you what that part is that you're ashamed of. What that part is that you feel is dirty. And Jesus is saying, I want to wash that part. I'm not going to run from you. I'm going to run to you. I'm going to bend down and wash that part. What do you have to do? You have to let me. You have to confess it. And then I'll wash it. But if you hold it back, then you're going to be walking in darkness. And I'm in the light. We're not going to be able to have fellowship together. Does that make sense? I think that's what he's saying. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I mean, if, if, if this means having part with you, well, then go for it. You know, give me a, the full-on bath here, Peter. We love him because he's so much like us. Wash me all over. And Jesus said, no, wrong again, Peter. <laughs> Peter's a man of extremes, isn't he? Jesus said to him, he was bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. See, in terms of salvation, in terms of uh, relationship with Christ, there was Judas that was there. That's who he's speaking of. And I wonder if when Jesus said, you are not all clean, Judas, Judas started to sweat a little bit. I'm not sure. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Like, well, yeah, you washed our feet, of course. You, know, you took the place of a slave, you washed our feet. That's easy. Maybe we can get one question right somewhere in this gospel. Verse 13 says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So that's where Jesus brings it home in terms of what our responsibility is with this. Jesus is, because we get confused about what God is like. We always say, oh yeah, we want to we want to follow Jesus. You know, I've decided to follow Jesus. You get baptized, now I'm going to follow Jesus. Well, Jesus, you're not going to follow him 
to this, you know, maybe the Lord will promote you to some great job, but but if you're going to do it the Lord's way, it's going to be to be humble. It's going to be to be a servant. It's going to be to be willing to bend down and serve one another. The world is full of people who want to be in charge. There was a, a great article that was written about a college that was accepting entrance. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You all mumbled at one time. So he's, applications, that's the word. Thank you. Uh, entrance applications. And, and all the kids, you have 1,500 applications for for you know, these spots that they have, and all 1,500 kids, I'm a, I'm a leader, uh, you know, this, I'm that, all about how great they were, right? And then one girl wrote in under her resume or her application that, you know, she really feels like she does best helping others and serving others. And they sent her a letter back that said, we are so glad to let you know that you are going to be, we're, we gladly welcome you into our university because we have 1,500 leaders coming. They're going to need someone to follow them. Everybody wants to be the prom queen, but no one wants to show up to decorate the clothes. Right? The body of Christ needs people that are willing to, and this is spiritually, I think, washing one another with the word. It means just a gentleness. And again, I want you to get the picture that when you wash someone's feet, there's a gentleness about it. And, and so with the word, when, when someone, when you see someone caught in a fault, you know, when you see someone overtaking the fault, the Bible says, go to them. In it, with a spirit of gentleness and humility and meekness and correcting them and helping them. Why? Because we love people and I don't want to... It's not love to watch someone destroy their lives. It's love to say, hey, you know, maybe there's a better way. Maybe God's Word has this. Now, people oftentimes don't accept that and that's we understand that. But you can wash with the water of the Word. And I think, so there's that part of it and there's also just the, the, the plain service of it. This is who we're called to be. We're called, we're called to be servants. Just as I have washed your feet. Because he says, look, a, a master not a teacher. You call me teacher and Lord. If I, your Lord teacher, have washed your feet, then you should be able to. I'm, you're not above me, right? Like if I am your master and I'm washing feet, you can't say you're better than me. You don't have to wash feet. You don't have to take that role of a slave. A lot of people say, oh, I'm a slave for the Lord until someone treats you like one. Then you get mad. How dare they ask me to do How dare they tell me to do that? Most assuredly, verse 16, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Are you greater than God? Listen, are you greater than God? No, we're not greater than God. And so if God stooped down, he humbled himself, he, he came out of heaven, he had equal with God, gave that up, he took off that garment of equality with God, he came to earth in the form of a human being, and he took on, Paul says, the form of a servant. Clothed himself in humility. That's what our God, and we're not better than him, so that, so why do we pretend to be better than him in front of people? Because we people like to be served, right? We like to be served, like someone to serve us. We don't want to have to serve people. And when you, I'm telling you, when you get that in your life, when you get that, when you have no agenda to be recognized, no agenda to be promoted, when you just show up and say, what can I do for you? That's a, a mantra in our home. In our home, the question I ask my wife, the question she asks me, what can I do for you? 
this is where marriages go way, way off the, the deep end. I mean, when, when everybody's trying to get the other one to serve them. Well, this is what I want. This is what I need. This is what's going to make me. You're not meeting my needs. That's not Christ's way. Christ's way is what can I do for you? How can I serve you? And then forget about yourself, right? And you watch what happens. You watch, think, well, how am I ever going to be happy that way? How am I ever going to? You watch what the Lord does in your life when you become a servant, when you give up your agenda and your thing, and you just begin to serve people. It's beautiful. And you watch how the Lord uses that. You watch how that changes things in people's lives. But you got to have no agenda. You can't be waiting for the, the return, right? I'm going to do this, but I'm going to expect you to do something back for me. You can't hold that over people. You've got to do it. Why? Because Christ did it. Now look, and this is what he says. If you know these things, verse 17 says, blessed are you if you do them. It's one thing to know it, acknowledge it mentally, and to say, yeah, yeah I know, being a servant, yeah, yeah, I'm serving the Lord. Yeah, Christ, I'm following Christ, I'm, I'm Christ's servant. You can talk about it all day, day long while you still are self-promoting. But you want to be blessed. Look, this is what, this is not Steve's word. This is God's word. And in my Bible, this verse is underlined. If you know these things, and now you do, thank you very much. You, you, could, have, you could have had that excuse before today, but now today, you no longer have that excuse. Now you know these things. Look, you really want to be blessed. And blessed, it sort of means happy. And to be blessed, it's not just simply happy. The person who is blessed has no needs. The person who is blessed is not trying to, to use other people to meet their needs, manipulate them. To, to use for their own happiness. The person who is blessed is fulfilled. And a servant is never as fulfilled as he is when his master is satisfied. When his master is happy. You, you, got, you know, our kids, they'll do anything to please us, right? And they're happy when we're happy. Until they become teenagers. And the whole thing changes. Kids have such a desire to please. And so I want, you know, as a servant, I'm, I'm so, you know, one of my favorite verses in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is my strength. What gives me strength day to day is, is the joy of the Lord. If, I, if, if I'm giving him joy, then that gives me strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. So how do I give him, how do I bring joy to the Lord? By imitating, by being a servant on his behalf. And, and when I'm pleasing him, when my master is pleased, that's, ah, man. Isn't that great when you, when you give someone flowers or you do something special and they go, man, I just, you just see the way it pleases them? And that makes you happy. So when you can learn to be happy that way, then, then you'll live this verse out. You'll see, just as it says, blessed are you if you do it. And everything else sort of takes care of itself, doesn't it? You know, I'm not worried about promotion. My casket's going to be the same size as another guy that's 5'10". I don't get a bigger casket if i got more money. I can't take it with me. Nobody's going to, you know. At the end, it's you and the Lord, man. It's you and the Lord. So I pray that we would be, we don't want to mess things up by trying to take charge of stuff. Just be a servant. We'll be happy. Just be a servant. Just acknowledge that in your life. Uh, accept that. Watch how the Lord blesses. Amen. Uh, if I could have the praise team come up.
while, uh, while the praise team's coming up, I'll add this um, final caveat. As we move into a new building, we got an awesome building. I mean, we, it is awesome. It is going to be fantastic. But the Lord has given it to us so we can be faithful with it, so we can use it to serve our county, to serve the people in this county and from wherever they come. So I pray that this would be the kind of church, I pray that we're the kind of church that serves other churches, that we look to build them up, to encourage them, to help them in any way, any resources we have, we'll, we'll, we'll use those. That's the kind of church that, that God honors, I think. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's